Good evening and welcome to Registry Report Radio. My name is Michael McKay, and this is the show where we talk about the latest developments in the sex offender registry and the reform movement as it pertains to that. We have an interesting show for you this evening. We're going to be introducing our cast of show hosts, which include Elizabeth Christensen, Dwayne Daughtry, and Shauna Baldwin. You'll learn a lot more about them as the show progresses and we give them a chance to introduce themselves. And we'll also be talking this evening about some of the encouraging developments that have occurred on the legal scene in the state of Michigan and the state of Alabama. So let me tell you a little bit about our co-hosts. Well, first, let me tell you how you can listen live. You, hopefully you're listening live right now. You can listen through any internet connected computer, but you can also listen through any telephone. The way you listen by telephone is simply calling our guest call-in number, which also doubles as our listening number. It's area code 563-999. 3712 and uh, just follow the prompts. If you want to just listen to the show, you can do that from any phone. It doesn't have to be a smartphone. It can be a wired phone, uh, whatever kind of phone you have. You can also listen just by clicking on a link in social media such as Twitter or Facebook. So let me tell you about our co-hosts. Uh, the great thing about uh, how we're going to do Registry Report Radio is uh, you don't have to just listen to me yak all the time. You get to listen to some great people who will be appearing regularly as my co-hosts. And uh, you'll also get to listen to some awesome guests. We have uh, Elizabeth Christensen, who is the CEO at registryreform.org. She's an advocate for children and civil rights and also a very big advocate for registry reform. She's a paralegal psychology major, and she is also the parent of a wrongfully convicted person on the registry. We also have Dwayne Daughtry, who is a blogger at Subjective Belief. He's a, a great writer. He's working towards a PhD in public policy. He's a great LGBTQ advocate, animal advocate and volunteer. He's a Narsal supporter and an Army veteran. And we also have Shauna Baldwin. And if you've seen the documentary Untouchable, you uh, have seen Shauna. If you haven't seen that documentary, uh, you can go to our website at registryreportradio.wordpress.com and click on the link and watch an excerpt which features Shauna Baldwin and uh, how she became not just a person on the registry, but how um, a little bit more about the events that have shaped her advocacy. And we'll be talking about that this evening as well with her. So right off the bat, I want to welcome Elizabeth back. If you listened last night to our interview with Elizabeth as one of our newest cast members and learning a little bit about her and her advocacy, how are you doing, Elizabeth? Doing well, thank you. How's everyone else doing tonight? I'm hoping everyone is. Dwayne and Shauna, are you I'm listening in the back? I'm doing Super. great. Well, we're going to talk in depth with both Dwayne and Shauna very shortly here, but first I want to ask you, Elizabeth, how did you uh, like your experience talking on the show last night? Oh, it was very easily in the top three traumatic experiences. I was so nervous. Yeah, it, it never gets easier, but you really, I think you did a great job. And just for our listening audience who may not have had the chance to listen to the interview with you last night, I want to play a clip of something that you said that I think we should just, I don't know, we should emblazon everywhere we can. And for someone who says that she was nervous, you sure can't tell by listening to this clip. I just want to instill hope in people who are caught up in this awful gulf of misery. I want them to find their voice. I want them to know that people care and support them. And I want them to know that their voice is important, that they can make a change. And it's okay. Take one step at a time. Do what you can do, but don't ever stop fighting for your rights to be a human and regain your dignity. That's pretty good. That's you, Elizabeth. <laughs> it's really shocking. If it wasn't so long, I'd have that tattooed on my shoulder. <laughs> Just perfectly encapsulates the, the message that we want to get out there and what we want the world to know. 
We're also going to be, after kind of introducing Dwayne and Shauna a little bit further in the show, we're going to be discussing Attorney General Dana Nessel of Michigan, and we're going to be discussing the decision out of Alabama, which affirms uh, certain constitutional rights of people on the registry there. So let's go straight to Dwayne and allow Dwayne to introduce himself to our listening audience. Dwayne, tell us a little bit about what brings you to the table here. Why is this not only important to you, but what are your goals and how do you approach your advocacy? Thank you for the introduction. I, 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 it's kind of humbling when you sit back and listen to someone else describe accomplishments and things. And I think that's what we're all here for the table to contribute is that so many times we feel beat down or we watch others that are beat down that we just really want to advocate. And I think what I want to do at this table, my desire is to really advocate a discussion that's somewhat taboo in, in pop culture that has become weaponized today. So there's twofold. I want to learn, and I think anyone listening, if you're, if you're angry, that's fine. But walk away learning something of how to empower yourself. And of course, as Elizabeth actually eloquently put, is the desire to bring hope to people that think that everything has dramatically changed because either of a poor choice or a bad circumstance. That's really why I'm here. And also to share from experience as well. Mm -hmm. You've been blogging for some, how long have you been a blogger? You know, I wouldn't even say it's really a blog. It's more of a uh, a venting way of just discussing uh, in a mirror to myself. What are my thoughts for the day? Why am I thinking of this? I call it an ADHD moment. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's really a way for me to just, I'm not alone. Other people think this and I, and I, it's somewhat useless at times. It's kind of critical thinking that you kind of want to mention at the dinner table, but it's just probably not appropriate to bring it up at the dinner table. It, it will incite a little bit of, I call it critical thinking that's a little bit overboard. It's mm -hmm. not meant to create a public policy or a thought. It's also to really drill down the, am I really overanalyzing something? Am I Am I alone in thinking this? And I'm finding that there are a lot of people that, that think somewhat like I do, but they want to bring something else or a different discussion to the table. So it's really nothing about complexity. It's a simplified thing of getting things off your chest. So uh, mm -hmm. blogging has been for about three years, and I'm not as blogging as much as I should. <laughs> so school has really taken over. But I think what I will do is, things that I'm introducing in class and research, I'll probably start blogging more about that. Mm -hmm. Are you, uh, well, first of all, I guess I should make clear to the audience that you don't blog solely about uh, registry topics. You basically blog about anything that's top of mind for you, uh, including LGBTQ rights, animal rights, politics, and all those sorts of things. What kind of reactions, uh, what kind of response are you getting from people uh, as a result of your blog? That's a good question. The, the response that I get is people are looking at me as not an advocate toward one thing. It's an advocate of living. I'm just like anyone else. All the people that are listening tonight are all, they all have their beliefs or religious beliefs. They all have different things to bring to the table other than just offender registry issues. So I try to I try to pick up a little bit of everything just to get the discussion going because sometimes you stumble across things that you are really unintentional, but the majority of my readers are enjoying it that it just doesn't feel like I'm just really focused on one tunnel vision era. I mean, there are plenty of websites out there to do that. So I hope to bring a little bit more of, all right, let's get away from this. It might be depressing for some. Let's talk about animals. Nobody's going to argue with cats and dogs, <laughs> except for the people that <laughs> now, don't do, like them. You, uh, you're also working towards a PhD in social policy. Is that a result of your your advocacy, or is your advocacy a result of your educational goals? I think it's a little bit of both. I was an education major that taught in the college system, business and computing sciences. So I was uh, formerly with a large big blue company that did manufacture computing a long time ago until recently. But my job with them and the university was programming languages, operating systems, and cloud management technologies. So once the registry became a, I guess, a, an issue, 
or a, ch a life-changing moment because of either restrictions or other things that are present, I decided to reevaluate where I would best fit in and use those same talents toward the social advocacy in general, because there are many facets other than just the registry. There are either medical, social, um, uh, financial, and so forth that can actually be brought into this. So public policy is a very broad stroke, but I still have some research I would like to challenge with SMART. So uh, I think it's a twofold of mm -hmm. that. Speaking of challenges, what, what challenges have you run into along the way, both personally and I guess you could say professionally, but what, what sort of challenges are you meeting as, a, as an advocate in this area? Well, the, the challenge is also just the credibility issue. It's um, if you walk in the door and, and people don't know you, but they like what they hear as far as the professionalism, but then when you do the full disclosure, it's, it's kind of like the uncomfortable silence and the mm -hmm, uh, type of reaction where their head nods and their body language changes. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's kind of like being in, I guess, a church congregation and somebody saying, oh, by the way, I'm gay. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of reaction to that. So the same thing is applicable there. I've just had to learn to apply it to where I've become empathetic. I can sense you're uncomfortable. However, I'm just uncomfortable at the same time because I'm having to disclose something that I shouldn't have to disclose. Mm -hmm. But I'd much rather you find out from me than finding out on your own through rumor control. And that's a lot about the registry itself it's rumor control. Are you active in any uh, state or national organizations for registry reform? Briefly involved in North Carolina with the North Carolina uh, chapter, but not as much as uh, I would like to have been with PhD. It's really consuming a lot of my energy. I will eventually get back to it, but I just need to figure out where my niche and where my energy can best be utilized. And it, it could be a blogging again. It could be doing some investigative reporting and so forth. Mm -hmm. Who would you say are your ideal uh, dream interviews that you'd like to do, people that you would like to talk to one-on-one, -on -one, wow, maybe on the radio show? Well, Guy Hamilton is one person yep. I would just it would love to go to a coffee shop and spend two hours talking to him. Other people I'm not so sure about. I think what I would really like to do is interview the state's attorney generals, like the North Carolina, uh, maybe Virginia would not be a good time to interview that person, but they're so adamant of protecting the registry. I'm trying to figure out their reasoning and logic. And sometimes when you go against the grain of somebody, you really learn a different perspective of what motivates them to be so adamant. So I'm, I'm really looking at state's attorney generals across the United States and also prosecutors that really are, are dedicated to prosecuting these types of crimes. What is their motivation? You know, what is their what is their thought? And sometimes when I'm doing research, I'm finding that there is not only politicized, there's a personal story behind it that advocates mm. towards something. So that's what I'd like to bring to the table. I'd love to interview some of these people. Sure. When it comes to uh, attorney generals, most people don't really stop and think that they are the top law enforcement official in the state. And they're motivated yeah. essentially by the same things that other law enforcement officials and officers are. They want to do the right thing. They want to do good things, but there's only so much you can do. And at a certain point, I think we're seeing a trend where they're realizing that they're biting off more than they can chew. They're doing more harm than good, that they are essentially digging themselves a hole that is getting increasingly harder and harder to get out of. You bring up an excellent issue of that is they are an elected official and they represent the law enforcement community. However, they are attorneys, and they should have at least a balanced approach of pros and cons and consequences. They represent the people of the state or commonwealth, or depending on where you're from. They're, they're not representing a cause, and when they're representing a cause, that's the politicized version of it. So I think it's time to really challenge the the attorney generals and also prosecutors. We need to you know stop really looking at the cause and start looking at the individual and the long-term effect instead of kicking the can down the road. So yeah. that's why I think it's important to really address these attorney generals. 
I think uh, you're absolutely right. I'm, in fact, I have largely ignored a lot of them until this Dana Nessel thing came up. And then suddenly I realized that it really matters what the attorney general thinks and says and does when it comes to how the state is going to prosecute these crimes and, and how they fight for or against them in court. Unfortunately, I think a lot of them have this knee-jerk reaction or attitude that they must defend these laws at all costs when it comes to appeals and going to the Supreme Court and that sort of thing. And that's kind of like telling a police officer that he has to believe in prosecuting jaywalking under any circumstances. You have to realize that a law enforcement officer, whether he's a cop on the beat or the attorney general for the entire state, has to exercise some common sense and a little bit of uh, discernment and the ability right. to I make think, a decision there. You know? I think it goes into where we define autonomy. So an attorney general is not an autonomous person, even though they are elected by people if they're on the ballot in a particular state. For instance, North Carolina has an attorney general that is elected separately than being appointed, let's per se, of the president of the United States appoints the attorney general represent the United States. Some states mm -hmm. have that methodology. But with that autonomy, there's also uh, the political system involved, either what party they represent. So if it's not in line with the actual party line itself, it becomes a, a liability for whomever's party they represent no different than a police department that they don't have autonomy. They have a unity and team player methodology. So you're not going to find a police officer saying, well, I can probably let you slide on this one or I can make the report look like this. I mean, we do have the road version of it, but it eventually is everyone has to just follow the, the, the line of how the bigger picture is played. The same thing plays in politics. So it's sure. very, um, we're not going to get away from this until we take the politics out of the system, which is just not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I was just going to say, don't don't hold your breath. Well, Dwayne, I want you to stick around. We're going to talk a little bit with Shauna now, and then we're all going to get together and, and do a little bit of a roundtable discussion on this topic a little further, as well as the uh, Alabama thing. So stick around, Dwayne, and we'll come back full circle in just a few moments. All right. All right. Thank you. All right. So our next host that I want to introduce to you is Shauna Baldwin. And Shauna has been featured in the documentary Untouchable. She has an incredible story. Hopefully you're aware of it at this point. I'm not sure uh, we can tell the whole story in this broadcast, but you can definitely watch the video on our website or on YouTube. Just search for her name. And uh, well, welcome to the show, Shauna. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks. Thanks for having me uh, as a host. I'm so super stoked for this. Nervous. Well, well we're, we're all stoked and we're all nervous, but uh, somehow we'll muddle through, I think. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a mother of three, I'm married to my best friend. I'm also someone who is um, required to register as a sex offender. Um, I'm as a, a being raised in more of a, a lower class environment and then getting in trouble very young. I didn't really make a lot of big choices after that as far as achievements and things because I was mainly just trying to survive. So now as an adult and now after some accomplishments that I've done personally for myself to deal with my own programming issues, I have finally <laughs> decided I really do want to use my voice and if nothing else, to give everyone else hope, to give someone else hope that may be able to say something in a way I can't, or may be able to have a story that touches somebody that could care less about what I may have to say, because it isn't really about my story. What it is, is it's about everybody's story. It's about the fact that every person has some type of understanding or at least reason on why certain things took place. And being in counseling and group for years really taught me that. Being a victim myself and listening, that was the healing thing for me. So I really just think people should just tell their stories. And that's a lot of my, my voice at the moment. 
For those uh, who have not watched the video yet and may be unfamiliar, you were convicted, I I believe, at 19 for a a sexual encounter with someone who was under 18. And you have been uh, on the registry for 19 years now. Is that correct? That's actually incorrect. I got in trouble at 19. I was convicted Mm -hmm. at 21. And so I've been on the registry now for 16 years. Wow. That's a long time. And uh, you you mentioned having been through SOTP or sex offender treatment program for that whole time. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I expect you have a lot to say about that. My experience with that was surreal, to to put it lightly. (laughs) It is a pet peeve of mine. I'm sure we'll probably end up doing at least one whole show about it at some point in the future. It's almost a twilight zone sort of experience, wouldn't you it say? Is. Yes, I agree. I, there's lots, there's things that I that I think are great about uh, great about it, and there are things that I think that are horrible about it. And I overall think that it's executed fault or just wrong, I, just absolutely incorrectly. So. I would like to do a whole segment on that. There's so much mm-hmm. to talk about that, that I, it's hard for me to even make a comment without going into a rant. So <laughs> my point on that is that it's, it's diverse, it's complex, and it's dirty, it's nitty gritty, and it's not nice, and it's ugly. And if people mm-hmm. really understood what that is, and what people who sit in those groups actually have to deal with for themselves, and I'm not talking about you know, we have to be quiet what we talk about in group and telling other people's stories. That's fine. We don't have to talk about that. But I'm talking about what you learn about you, mm-hmm. you know, about me, about things that they make you, you believe about it. yourself. Yeah. And that's all I got to say about that. Considering how crazy your story is, what are the topics that you think deserve the most attention when it comes to registry reform? I mean, the, for example, we just talked about SOTP, and, and it's one that's rarely addressed by people in this area. What are some of the other topics that you would like to to shine a brighter light on that maybe isn't being sufficiently talked about right now? Off the top of my head, families, families that are with people who are required to register and what the families go through. If the registrant has any children, another topic that's very difficult to navigate and maneuver around. I'd like to talk about education and prevention, and that is in like, honestly, five different areas. I'm very optimistic by nature, and that's probably what's kept me going all these years. And I cannot look at this system the way I used to look at it as something that cannot be understood. And I'm not a religious person, nor am I anything like that. I believe in God. And I just feel this is like a David Goliath situation, and that's how I feel about it. I feel Mm -hmm. like we're going up against a huge, huge thing that looks like it can never, ever, ever be taken down. And we have one little rock. (laughs) I believe that that one rock can do so many things. Well, we have our voices, as, as Elizabeth reminded us last That's night. The rock. You know, we have our voices, and we've got to utilize them. If we don't, then it's pretty hard to complain if you haven't spoken your mind and told people what you want to see as an outcome. But what do you want to see as an outcome as a result um, of your advocacy? Well, number one is I'd love to see the fact that people could honestly be open about the ways that they feel before they do something they probably shouldn't do. I would love to see mental health issues be taken care of so much more seriously in this country. (laughs) Almost number one, honestly. I would love Mm -hmm. for people to truly understand mental health issues. I'd also love for people to understand drug issues. Those two big things are a huge, huge asset to the registry growing the way that it's growing. On top of, of course, laws that are being made that are just insane. And then like you guys talked about with the attorney general and what they decide and then the police and it goes down from there. But I'd like to see that people could be open, say, hey, you know what? I have these tendencies. I don't know why I have these tendencies. And then they can learn, you know what? It's not that you actually feel that way. It's that you're feeling insecure. You're feeling down about yourself. As adults, we can twist that because we get depressed, because we have negative thoughts, because we have pain and have seen ugly Children don't see those things. Even teenagers, you know, they feel some, but they don't understand the world the way that adults do. So it's easy for adults' brains to go tainted because we've seen so much tainted things. The world's not pretty. So I think if people could get through the ugliness and be able to express and talk, it prevents a lot of abuse. That's number one. I mean, really, number one is for people to really open the lines of communication. 
we're opening the lines of abuse about how people have been abused and people are stepping up and saying, hey, I've been abused. And people who haven't seen the film or haven't seen anything like that, I, I have been too. I have multiple different stories of sexual abuse that have happened to me and or physical abuse. Okay, it, it, it happens. How do we grow from that? And how do we help others grow from that? And that's what I really want to share with others is growth mm-hmm. and, and acceptance. And, and honestly, redemption. There's no redemption for anyone that is charged with anything that has to do with sex, like any way. There seems to be redemption for any other charge. There seems just no redemption for this. Sorry, doesn't matter. Right. Years of proving. Years of proving. There's no reason. Years of proving. There's nothing to be worried about. It means nothing. There's no redemption. Right. So when you give, when you take people's hope away and you say, okay, I'm going to make you be on this and people are going to know and you're going to have tons of people that either send you hate mail or whatever kinds of mail you get because I've got tons of different types or, you know, you're worried about whatever. You can't get a job. You can't have this house because it's too close to a school or a park or whatever. And you can't have your family and you can't have your kids and you can't have this and you can't. Well, you've just taken somebody who's already hopelessly desperate and taken all of their basic needs for human survival away. Shelter, food, uh, clothing, and love, most importantly, hope. Support and yep. hope. And yep. when you take that stuff away from people, you want to, uh, you, you don't understand why people are out there, you know, robbing. People are not going back to jail for a new sex offense. There are some. I'm not going to say people are not. I'm saying the majority. If you look at the recidivism actual rate, rate, not for what they've been put back in for, the recidivism rate's so low. Everybody else has done something stupid, more likely out of desperation. And I don't think a lot of, I don't think society understands that. And um, I'm just, I just want to bring awareness. That's it. Education and awareness. I get very passionate about it. I apologize. You don't have to apologize for passion. Not on this show anyway. I'm really glad that that you brought up that topic of of redemption. That that happens to be one of my pet peeves and, and one of the, what I would like to think one of the primary focuses of my advocacy is this tendency of people who are very active, people and organizations active in criminal justice reform to make exceptions exceptions to policy, exceptions to their agenda, exceptions to their advocacy, uh, which basically say, yes, we believe in redemption except for violent crimes or except for murderers or except for people on the sex offender registry. And the way I look at it, either you believe in redemption or you don't. If you believe in redemption only for some people, then you don't believe in redemption. If you believe in rehabilitation for only some people, then you don't believe in rehabilitation. And I don't know how we get that message across to people, but I'm glad you brought it up. It's a pet peeve of mine yeah, as well. And, I, and, I, and I'm not sure either. I know that it's, of course, um, very much more sympathetic when you're talking about kids that have been arrested and placed on the registry or, t- or you know, my type of story where it's two teens with consensual sex. And those stories are, are so much more easier to relate to, you know, to understand. Those are understandable. Mm-hmm. When you go into other things, people start putting the walls up and say, well, that's not understandable. Well, that's not forgivable. Well, the last time I checked, I was told that I could be forgiven for anything because I'm not perfect and none of us are. So as long as I know that I, I have my peace and I hope others find their peace, I think that helps with speaking out is when you can find your own peace. Absolutely. And there's, pe- well, and there's peace in the pain. Well and I need everybody to understand that there's so much peace in the pain, when you move out of that pain and you look at the pain and you see where it brought you, look at all of us right here talking. Who knows who this is going to reach? But, you know, it, it brought us here. There's beauty in that pain and that we can make something beautiful out of something that's tended to be so ugly. Sure. Turn it into something positive. Absolutely. We're going to bring Elizabeth and Dwayne back to the table here, and uh, we're going to move the discussion forward a little bit by talking about the amicus brief, which was filed by Attorney General Dana Nessel in Michigan in favor of, strangely enough, on the side of someone on the registry who is appealing a case before the Michigan Supreme Court. And so Elizabeth, Dwayne, and Shauna, are the three of you familiar with what's going on in that case? Yes. Yes, I read it over the weekend. Well, I'm excited about it. I don't know about you guys, but I'm excited about this because it's it's coming from 
an attorney general, not from defense attorney, but chief law enforcement officer for the state, which basically says that, that the sex offender registry is punitive, which courts have consistently said again and again that it's not. So I think that's uh, important. It's also uh, refreshing to see the truth come out of an elected official. Now, you, you mentioned something about that, Dwayne. Elizabeth, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, I kind of was wondering if that means that this would be a precedent in which other states would use to fight the registry. I don't know about a precedent. It can't be used as a precedent yet. Uh, because right. it hasn't exhausted all its legal avenues. If, if, if it goes higher, uh, Court of Appeals and then Supreme Court, if, the, if either of those courts decide to send it back to a lower court, then there is indeed a precedent. However, it would be a bit too early to play into that because there are many other cases that could supersede that part of the precedent. And mm-hmm. And also, this is a case, it's Michigan versus Schneider and the People versus Betts. It's really a little bit more than that because it conflicts with other states. And because the judge in Michigan that represented that area, it's only enforceable for Michigan. So it's no different than the Alabama. Sure. Um, it's it's going to have to have some traction to go forward. Well, I think the strength of it is that it could be used as a template for yeah. Action in other states. The uh, as we'll mention for the Alabama thing, uh, I'm looking forward to it being used as a template in Mississippi and Oklahoma. This Michigan amicus brief by the attorney general is it's just beautifully written and, and would serve as a great template for for other attorney generals if they were, were willing to step up and express the same opinion. It's also a great template for advocates like us to take note of the the cases that they cite, the studies that they cite, you know, you you just pretty much have to know that the attorney general's office put a lot of work into that and they vetted a lot of those sources and they know what's going to be believed and not believed uh, when it's put before a judge. And so I think it's a great, if nothing else, it's a great resource for us. What do you think? Yeah, I was kicking myself thinking that that about the presentation and i was thinking i should have just sent those amicus briefs and skipped putting everything (laughs) together it was done so well the only concern i have about this brief is that yes it does address a a very large issue but the minor issue that i'm really uh, disappointed with i'm uh, not to say i'm not happy about this case is michigan still charges all of its offenders, $50 of registry fee annually. So mm-hmm. if you want to make a good step in saying the registry is not a valid tool, then first the attorney general should work with the state and the, the, the Supreme Court of Michigan to overturn those registry fees for Michigan registrants. Do you also agree that most of the time any of these state prisons courthouses, things like that, uh, probation, any of those things. I mean, they're pretty money-oriented anyway. I hate to say it that way, but that's kind of how I see it. Because of the money they make off of people who can't find jobs well enough to pay those types of fees. Replacing that system that they have, I don't blame them at all. But I think if we replaced the system of making money, right, is people on probation and people having to do these things. If we replace that with something in the term of education and prevention, then that would be a, a complete, I think, game changer if every person could understand where that could be beneficial. But that's that's a dream down the road. Shauna, you bring up an excellent valid point. Uh, part of my research is 90, 92% of registrants are likely to be unemployed or underemployed. That means they're working under the table, but the states are collecting millions in SMART grants to distribute to offset the registry cost. So I don't understand why states are charging fees on fees that they already receive from federal government. But the reason they do this, and this is my thinking of this, is that once the Walsh Act was passed, it forced states to have an intercompact uh, uh, conversation with the federal government. So, you know, if you move from here to Arizona, to Arizona, to California, it just follows you, but, you know, each of those states have a different way. 
the first thing is, as long as Michigan should chip away at this registry and other states can follow as a template, then the federal government has a, a very administrative dilemma to address is that the registry from the federal point is not really a federal registry. It's just a collective of all the other registries. It is a moneymaker. And the reason they're charging the fees are the websites that actually sell to the state. These registries are increasing their fees because they have to, they have increased over well over 200% in the past mm -hmm. 11 years. So it's now the states are left to, to finding resources and money. But I really put blame back into the federal government is the one that created this problem, not the sure. state. Sure. The federal government creates the mandates, but it's an unfunded mandate. So the, the federal government tells the states that they have to do this, but doesn't tell them how they're going to pay for it. And so that leaves them scrambling to somehow create an infrastructure a process, hire people, train people, run the website, pay for outside vendors like a Fender Watch, uh, which is the uh, one of the major third-party database providers for registries in, in 62% of the, of the uh, not 62% of the states, but 62% of all people on the registry are in a Fender Watch's database. And even my local police use that, that service because they can't afford to run their own website for the mo for the most part they can't afford to hire extra people to administer these programs and so i almost can't blame them for charging people a fee to be on the registry but at the same time especially now that the courts are beginning to recognize that this is indeed punitive it's kind of like charging me for the electricity before strapping me into the electric chair it even goes further than that is that in Georgia, Georgia released a little over 600 people from its registry last year because they found that they were not deemed, it just didn't meet their registry requirements. But, mm -hmm. you know, when you use these home link and home services or whatever dot coms, these mom and pop shops, still 70% or 71% of the people that are removed from the registry are still on that registry. So, right. you know, it, it creates even a bigger problem of even if the registry is gone, the administrative dilemma that we have in America is that the Internet is the permanent registry. And in fact, someone yeah. sitting in Germany or Japan right now can, can search for anyone in the United States. And it means nothing to them, but it's just kind of a fun search about our sure. privacy. And all of those third-party sites that list people on the registry, it's a huge moneymaker for them. And, and in many ways, it's a scam. It's extortion because they, they list people without any regard for whether they've been removed from the registry, whether they deserve to be on the list. It's just a horrible scam. And I, personally, I think they but, ought to be right. driven out of business. And then the, the problem is that even if you're removed from the, the registry or or you have inaccurate data, you have to pay for a service to remove yourself or others from a service mm -hmm. that you shouldn't even been listed in the first place. So it's, that's insane. There, but right, and there is no credibility standard or judicial standard because of a Freedom of Information Act that will uh, ever relinquish you from it. This is why magazines like the Slammer, Mugshots, and so forth. This is where. We really don't need the registry anymore, to be honest. We, we have all of this. Since the conversation has gotten a little bit away from Dana Nessel in Michigan, let's move on to our next topic, which is the Alabama decision. The, uh, the decision in Alabama, for those who may not be aware of it, just was decided in favor of various John Doe's versus Alabama. The, the judge in this case was U.S. District Judge Keith Watkins, who incidentally was the same judge who ruled a couple of weeks ago that a, an inmate being executed could not have a, a Muslim inmate, could not have an imam uh, by his side as he uh, was going to the execution chamber. 
he has uh, ruled in this particular case that the internet reporting requirements, uh, and those are the requirements requiring registrants to report their social media accounts, their email accounts, and that sort of thing, were overbroad and infringed upon their First Amendment rights. And he also ruled that the requirement to have your driver's license overstamped with some sort of identification, identifying you as, as a registered sex offender, uh, was also infringement of your constitutional rights. I'm not sure if it was an argument in that case based on on compelled speech or not. I believe it was. So let's start with Shauna. Are you familiar with the case, Shauna? And what do you think about what's transpired there? I am some. and I personally know what that means to have sex offender stamped on my driver's license. I had that for eight years in the state of Oklahoma. And for, for the judge to say that is helpful because First Amendment rights, like we we have those too. <laughs> I think it's, to me, it's almost, it's so simple that I don't understand why nobody else understands why that, you know, to me, why it wouldn't make sense to other people that we're humans as well and we have rights. So having that on the license, here's the thing. I understand the fear in wanting people, you know, fear is a big motivator for people. And I get that people would want to know, quote unquote, what they believe to be monsters in their area. But it's not like they're going to show their driver's license to you. That's correct. Except for if you talk to me, because when I was in Oklahoma, I just showed it to everybody because I thought it was Mm -hmm. draconious and everybody else did as well. However, you do show as a mother. I showed my driver's license to the school my children went to. I showed my driver's license mm-hmm. to every doctor they had. I showed my driver's license to every dentist appointment they had, every ER visit we went to, everything. So when I'm bringing my child in and then, you know, they're hurt or something, and then I have to show my license that says sex offender on it. Every single time I walked into a place with my child, when something was not going well with them, a fear came over me that my children would be taken in. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I totally agree with you. It's not as if we, well, obviously you just said you did show your license to a lot of people, but I also have an identifier on my license and it produces a lot of stress in me when I know that I may have to show my license to somebody else. And you don't think about the various times where that might happen. You know, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm a retired military person. I qualify for a military discount just about everywhere I go in restaurants and things like that. And of course, you know, you show an ID and thankfully I show my military ID for the discounts. But for example, if I go to the casino and I win $10,000 at the blackjack table, I've got to show my driver's license to collect my winning. If I apply for a job, if I rent a car, if I check into a hotel, they want to see my driver's license, even if I buy a six pack of beer at the grocery store. So chime in real quick on you saying about job. That's where I was at job. Okay. So in the state of Oklahoma, a lot of times on applications, they would ask, and I'm, I don't know if it's that way everywhere, but in the last seven years, have you, have you been convicted of a felony or misdemeanor? Now, after you've not been convicted for seven years of any of that, then you can mark no. Well, when you have your license that has that stamped on it, and you mark no, and then they want your, of course, social security number, card, all the, you know, your identification cards, and they see that, then it's like, well, you said you weren't convicted of a felony. Uh, correction, mm-hmm. I said it wasn't seven years ago, and then right. you lose the job. And it's yeah. like, hmm, okay, well. Yeah. So it's it, it me for answering so truthfully. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to chime in. I think there's really a bigger issue here is that if that designator is on a license, a driver's license printed, and the individual needs to attend the DMV for a road test, does this added uh, disqualification factor involved if the examiner doesn't want to have that individual in the car with them? So having a license that would identify that rather than if the examiner were to look it up instead, I think it creates a bigger issue of creating uh, institutional discrimination. Um, oh, sure. So, uh, you know, I'm glad this is taken away, but we have a long way to go. The only thing that I really don't like about this whole case, and I'm glad we're making it chip away, I would have liked for the judge in Alabama to have removed the 2,000-foot restriction, but instead he upheld that part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a long way to go in in this decision, but it's very, there's always something else. Yeah, but it's very encouraging. Again, 
for no other reason than to use it as a template for for addressing these injustices in other states. Elizabeth, did you want to chime Absolutely. in on the Alabama decision, Elizabeth? Nothing except to say, you know, I didn't understand that Alabama and other states made people do that. And mm-hmm. to say that it's not a branding, a form of punishment, you know, like you said, no one who's going to assault someone is going mm-hmm. to pull out their driver's license first, right. show it to them. You know, this is that that's the only function it could be is to brand and shame and punish and banish an individual. That That's the only thing it could possibly have any yeah, functionality even- to do. Even if you subscribe to that, the stereotypical uh, registrant who is cruising the neighborhood in a in a in a in a white van with a bag of candy trying to lure children, it's ludicrous to think that they're going to also take out their driver's license and identify themselves to anybody while they're you know looking to right. offend. I mean, anyone who's like looking to, to offend, it takes the Elizabeth, it takes car carrying member to another level. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I was just Go ahead, Elizabeth. Say, the state that makes people put fluorescent green license plates on their car. Well, there are states that make registrants put the sign on their car as well. I can't name them off the top of my head, but I did a, a blog article about this where there are states that not only require them to post signs in their yards, sometimes particularly for Halloween and things like that, but there are states that require them to mark their vehicles, not only their personal vehicles, but the vehicles they drive for work as well. So it's crazy. You were going to say something, Shauna. Go ahead. And, 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 yeah, and, and, and what I wanted to say about that and, and kind of going off of Dwayne, kind of what he was saying about how, how this can even affect in different ways, what if you have that mark on your car, on your driver's license, the, the lights, whatever it is that they decide to choose, mm-hmm. and you and your we, you get in a bad accident, okay? And then, you know, the of course, the first the first responders, they have a job and they have a duty. But the people before that, when you're in conscience and you've been in a bad wreck and they're trying to figure out who you are, so they grab the wallet, right, and they're looking, what's to say that that person may not have trauma that was never healed? And that seeing that triggers and they just drop it and walk away. And that could have been somebody that saved somebody else's life. But because of that moment of judgment, because of the branding, they decided mm-hmm. that person isn't worth saving. And we are well, not it, allowed to do yeah. that as sure. humans. It not, to choose it who not is only worth creates saving and who isn't. It not only creates an entire class of people who will be considered second class people, it, it allows that brand to be applied to people in ways that would allow them to be treated as subhuman even. Example, perfect example is what you just used there. If you're in an accident, literally the first people on the scene, even first responders like police and ambulance people could take what's on that license and use that as an excuse to just simply let you die. And I'm not aware of that happening, but it's entirely plausible. And God forbid that it actually ever does that happen. That has happened. I want. No. I, I yeah. want to, okay. Disclaimer: sure. I did not say that has ever happened. But it could. Nor do I believe but it, it has. But it could. These are mm-hmm. these are possibilities well, of things that could. We're all human. We all make judgments. We all do. And so you cannot expect that another human being may not be triggered by something that is such a sensitive topic sure. to not at least sure. contemplate something like that, maybe in a in a situation like that. I think what we should all do is, because of that identifier, we should all advocate that we have our own handicap space at the door so we can get in and out quickly. So, uh, we, right. Uh, <laughs> I, want a, I, I want a handicap sticker then that says I get to be right there yeah. so I get to get in and out quick. <laughs> Yep. Well, having having that here, so I, having I, that stamped I, I, on your license is definitely a handicap. I can tell you that. Well, we're kind of at the end of our time here. Time flies when we're having a great discussion. But you yep. got any final thoughts uh, for us, Elizabeth, as we wrap up here? Thank you, and thank you everyone for being here tonight and such great conversation and ideas. Super, Dwayne. How about you? I, I'm so glad you're here. Nothing other than Thank I'm you. hoping to get uh, feedback either on Twitter or however people want to respond. Um, you know, so they will have questions. Uh, basically, maybe we can ask for them. Uh, you know, this is their forum, and uh, I'm really glad that I'm really super stoked. I I know an old guy saying the word stoked. It just doesn't sound right. But hey, uh, I'm glad I'm... for Elizabeth and Shauna being <laughs> here as well. Our our generation invented the word, Dwayne. Don't be don't be shy about using it. Shauna, any. Any last thoughts, Shauna? Yeah. On, uh... yeah, 
mm-hmm. something just hit me. And, and if anybody that, that I know that knows this individual will laugh when they hear me say this because they'll know that I took it to heart. I heard somebody that I, I admire greatly and respect who's extremely powerful in their field, that you cannot rush progress. And as we've been talking here, you know, it's going to be a long process, you know, it'll be a long process. And we've said that many times during this conversation. And I want to point out that we can't rush that. We can't rush progress. However, I feel so good that we are helping move the progress a little bit forward. I truly, truly am thankful that, and, and grateful, Mike, that you asked that I'd be a host here and grateful to know all three of you. I'm, I'm very grateful that you, you all have agreed to take on this task. It's not an easy one. It, like I was telling Elizabeth earlier today, uh, the nervousness never quite goes away. This is a scary thing, speaking your mind on the radio. But I know that it's going to be worth it. And I know that as we learn and work through this, that we're going to get better and better at this and have more and more of an impact. So thank you all very much. Folks, you've been listening to Registry Report Radio. We're going to try and have a show at least every week and we can actually add additional shows in and and to the point where we could even have shows on a daily basis if we want to all we need is uh, some great guests and hosts that are willing to uh, take the time to uh, broadcast we also will have more and more emphasis in the future on a call-in number so if you have questions to ask us live during the show you can call in the number and participate in the show with your questions and comments you might want to write that number down right now so the next time you can call right in and put your two cents worth in. That number is 563-999-3712. And we'll also, from time to time, have a live chat room that appears on the Blog Talk Radio website just below the player for the show. So if you uh, are listening and you want to add your comments or questions, but you don't like the sound of your own voice, and that a lot of us fall into that category, then you can use the chat room. So there are a lot of possibilities and a lot of opportunities for you to be a part of what we're doing. Again, I want to thank you for listening tonight and remind you to, to check back often to see about future episodes of the show. So my name is Mike McKay, and you're listening to Registry Report Radio. Good night. It's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.